Well, if, you're, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Uh, some of you may have noticed that I was away on vacation. Uh, and so now we're, we were three weeks away from Mark, and, and now we're, we're coming back to Mark, and we're coming back to him at actually a great place to have uh, uh, skipped three weeks because it's a couple little paragraphs that sort of force you to review uh, what had come in front of it. So it's a natural place to uh, pick up when you have turned away from uh, what's going on in Mark 6 a little bit because our little paragraph, as I say, uh, just insists that you review a little bit about what has just been going on. So with that said, let's stand one more time and we'll read verses 30 to 33. Mark 6, verse 30 to 33. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, the psalmist in Psalm 140 says, Deliver me, O God, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men, those who plan evil things in their heart, stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Oh, guard us, O Lord from the hands of the wicked, preserve us from violent men. Father, we are often discouraged by how much trouble there is around us. Sometimes it's aimed specifically at us, and other times it's more broad and general but we still easily find it discouraging. And it seems like the enemies of your causes, the enemies of righteousness, the enemies of truth, they are flourishing. They are in charge. They are holding all of the cards culturally speaking. And we are on the outside 
And we are often discouraged and wounded by what we see, what's happening in our own lives, what's happening in our own families. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come and enter the situation that we experience and that you would show us your mercy and your grace. Father, we think particularly of some who are just intensely afflicted. The psalmist says, I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. We know it, but sometimes we don't feel like we see it. But rather, the afflicted remain deeply afflicted. And in this regard, we lift up our friends, Pat and Sandy, who have had far more than their share of affliction. And we plead your promise for them as Sandy has continued suffering, even as they approach the wedding day of their son. May you maintain the cause of the afflicted. And Lord, there are numbers of others in our congregation as well. We're facing diagnoses, we're facing ongoing struggle with illnesses that drag on and slowly erode freedoms and enjoyments in life. We pray. Lord, that you would maintain the cause of the afflicted. And you assure us that in the end, in the end, you will be found to have maintained our cause. That in the end, surely the righteous will be found giving thanks to your name. And the upright will be found dwelling with you in a new heaven, and in a new earth, forever. We claim that promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. The, uh, I mentioned periodically that we divide up our Sermons almost exclusively by the paragraph breaks in the uh, NA uh, 26 and 27. Now this morning I've actually, though we still have a small text, this is two little paragraphs as they occur in, uh, in, that, um, in that edition of the Greek New Testament. The first paragraph is just verse 30 and 31, and the next one is just verses 32 and 33. And then the next paragraph is just one verse long, and we will take that one next week by itself. Uh, Verse 34, 
But as I say, these two little paragraphs are a review or a summary and a completion of the story that has been running its way all the way through the sixth uh, chapter of Mark's gospel. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran on, they ran from all the towns around and got there ahead of them. So they're, they're coming to Jesus and they're giving a report to him about their short-term mission trip. Um, uh, since I returned from vacation, uh, Craig and Chris got back. They took a short-term mission trip, a long one, all the way over to Kenya. Uh, Hete is on a short-term mission trip right now in, uh, in Mongolia, and, uh, and he gave a, an announcement related to that little short-term mission trip just last Sunday. And not that long ago, on a Sunday evening, our a group from our church was up here, and they were giving a report on a short-term mission trip that they took to Mexico. Uh, well, that's, that's what the disciples are doing here in this text. They are giving a report to Jesus on this short-term mission trip that they took of all that they did and all that they taught. Now, most of what has happened so far in Mark 6 is related to what they taught. And remember, that was made prominent as the trip was announced back in verse 12. Um, So the disciples are sent out of this short-term mission trip, having been told what not to take so that they could learn to trust God. But as they go, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And then there's a couple of a paragraph aside about the fact that not many people like to be called to repentance. And the more prominent they are, the less they like it. And in fact, John the Baptist gets murdered because he was carrying out this ministry of repentance. Um, And that's just, just plugged in there. And now right after the announcement of the fact that John the Baptist lost his life because of preaching repentance, we find the disciples giving their report about how it went uh, when they went out and preached repentance. 
state our thesis for this morning this way. We're reminded of our need to rest in the midst of our ministry efforts because that's what Jesus tells them they're about to do after he receives their report. Okay, let's pull aside. We're going to rest a while, Um, which would indicate maybe that not everything went perfectly on their trip, um, and uh, and he thinks they might uh, be in need of a break as they come off of it because everything just keeps going on. So three angles that we'll look at this this morning. Number one, disciples are brought together to review and report. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. Now, actually, that that little phrase there is in a passive form, which also means it could be middle uh, passive, and so it, it could be read, and they were brought together. But almost all the authorities think here it has more of a, a middle sense. In other words, they gathered themselves together. They gathered themselves together with Jesus, and they give this report. One interesting thing about terminology in the Gospels is that the term apostles, which is used here, that that almost, that doesn't occur much in the Gospels at all. Matthew uses the term apostle once. Um, Mark uses it twice. John uses it once. And Luke uses it six times for a total of ten Ten times. When you get to Paul's epistles, the numbers switch right around and apostle is all over the place. Uh, but, but in the Gospels, ten times. Whereas the term that Don reminds us about every Sunday morning, we are becoming disciples. The term disciple occurs more than 200 times in the Gospels. So 20 times more plus more than 20 times more than the term disciples, uh, or than the term apostles, I should say. The apostles returned and chose, told Jesus all that they had done and taught. Doing and teaching, doing and teaching, doing and teaching. That's, uh, that little combination might sound familiar to you. That's how the book of Acts opens. That's what the entire book of Acts is about, according to Luke. The first verse of Acts, here's what Luke says. Remembering is that he wrote, already wrote the gospel. In the first book, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the Gospel of Luke about? It's about what Jesus did, and it's about what Jesus taught. Uh, Their report is about what they did, confronted evil forces, healed people, and about what they taught, which is that they preached repentance. Now, I remind you again, another really, I was shocked by this when I when I noticed it, uh, or was informed about it, that, remember, the, the term repentance only occurs twice in Mark's gospel. Uh, it occurs back in chapter 1 as the summary of the ministry 
of, uh, of John the Baptist. Uh, and now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So Jesus preaches this gospel of repentance, which is the gospel of God. It's the gospel about God. It's the gospel that God has sent forth. And then, earlier in this chapter, and so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. One of my little reading projects right now, reading two classic authors back and forth between them, uh, one uh, mild, sort of easy uh, person to read from Nebraska, the, um, uh, the author Willa Cother, um, who is famous for writing about pioneer days in Nebraska. Uh, but on this trip, I was, I was reading uh, novels by uh, the Southern author who, one of the most prominent authors in American history, won the Nobel Prize uh, for Literature uh, back in 1949, won the Pulitzer Prize twice, William Faulkner. William Faulkner. Read the book As I Lay Dying, read the book Sanctuary, um, uh, just finishing up um, uh, his book, Light, in August. Just a cursory read of William Faulkner will tell you this. He really hates Christians. He really hates, despises Christians. He despises them because he, he holds them to be judgmental. He holds them to be busybodies. He holds them to be critical. But what that really comes down to is he hates the call to repentance. He hates it. And he hates Anybody who makes it. He really does. He really does. One of his characters, most, most, among the most, most despicable characters, will be that one. That one. The Christian. Well, you know, that, that, that's... There's nothing unique in William Faulkner about that. If you pay attention to just our cultural messaging generally and what's on television, it's the same. It's the same. People really hate anybody who preaches the message of repentance. And they'll hold it against you. They will hold it against you. And yet, that doesn't change the fact that's our message. 
Now, we don't have to be obnoxious about it or bombastic about it, but I'll warn you, no matter how careful you are about it, if it's even discernibly a call to repentance, it won't be okay. It will not be okay. And that's what they were doing out there. Secondly, disciples are urged to come apart with Jesus and rest. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come aside to a desolate place. That little phrase occurred earlier in Mark's gospel about the regular practice of of Jesus, right? We, we ran into it back in chapter 1. Morning after, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then that evening, news had spread about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. So all kinds of sick people had come to Peter's house. And Jesus had he been healing them. And so Uh, The next morning, a whole bunch of people show up to get Jesus back on the game, but he's already gone. Uh, He's not there. And the explanation for why he's not there was in Mark 135. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And that's what he's urging the, the disciples to do now. Okay, we're, we need to go find a desolate place. Get away from all of this stuff that's going on. All of this busyness that's going on. And rest a while. Those of you who are involved on uh, Sunday nights, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, been struck by what a prominent thing this business of rest is, usually in the form in Exodus of Sabbath rest. Big deal. Very, very big deal. But long before you get to Exodus, right? Right at the, in the creation account, first three verses of Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done, and he rested. He rested on the seventh day from all his work. So that God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work which he had done. Now in the Exodus account of that from the creation, it's the emphasis on rest almost exclusively. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, sojourner within your gates for six days. The Lord made the heaven and the earth, direct reference back to Genesis 2, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day, and therefore God blessed the seventh day. Now in the Deuteronomy parallel to that, in Deuteronomy's presentation, 
of the commandment to rest in the Sabbath day. There's a word about what you're supposed to do or think about, focus on in that rest. So the two broad things in particular, and here's how you read into it. It actually uses the same word for rest in the Greek translation anyways of the Old Testament as Jesus uses here, as Mark uses here. Observe the Sabbath day. This is Deuteronomy 5.12. Keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any uh, of your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates, that your uh, male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt And that the Lord, your God, brought you out with a mighty hand. You shall remind yourself of who you are, who you really are, a rescued slave. Especially important for those who've tended to start to think they're fairly important. Remember who you are, a rescued slave. And remember who rescued you. The Lord your God, who brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You pull aside from all this stuff you're doing and remind yourself who you are, who you really are, and who God is is. You say, well, that doesn't sound very complicated. I don't think it is very complicated. But most people are basically totally unaware of the answer to either of those questions most of the time. They have no idea who they really are. And they have absolutely no idea who God is. And in the Deuteronomy rendition, at the center of this idea of regular rest is that you remind yourself who you are. And you remind yourself of who God is. Thirdly, disciples will not find rest easy to come by. Disciples will not find rest easy to come by. Uh, If you read over this too fast, you don't really see what happens here. This is a really failed effort, um, as it turns out, according to verse 32 and 33. So, here's of the disciples and Jesus. They went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay, well, that sounds like, okay, mission accomplished. But then verse 33 
says this. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. Well, where did they get ahead of them? Well, they got to the desolate place ahead of them. And most of the commentators think, implying, so it wasn't all that desolate by the time they got there. All these people are there. And in fact, a mass of people are about to be there because by evening of that day is what we call the feeding of the 5,000, which generally is understood to be the feeding of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So there is a mass of people there. So apparently, the uh, get alone in a desolate place thing didn't work that well. Didn't quite happen. Say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's that's a good little warning that we're not that great at getting aside and resting, moving to a desolate place. We, we're not great at that. It does not happen easily. And, and you, you can be very, you, you, you look out and say, well, you hear reports like this that have been in the news repeatedly over the, the, the last couple of years. You know, young, young, people, young people are just being really negatively impacted by certain elements of social media. Very, very strong negative impact, greatest negative impact on young women. So broad impact, negative impact, greatest impact on young women. And you can say to yourself, well, that's an easy fix. Parents just take those phones away and, you know, uh, problem solved. You know, then they're not, they won't be on there uh, anymore, and, uh, and there you go, problem solved. Well, that, that's, that solution definitely draws forth, you know, a little phrase that we use regularly, and it's definitely true in this case, um, easier said than done. Easier said than done. No, actually, you know, None of us are very good at this. Now, I'm I'm not an overly technical person. I'm an underly technical person. I've never I have never had a Facebook account. Uh, I've 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 never had a Twitter account. Um, I have a lifetime. uh, the, The the amount of time that I've spent on TikTok in my lifetime is under three minutes. Uh, YouTube, though, not quite that successful. And in fact, you know, when you're traveling to places like Glacier National Park, I'll tell you something about Glacier National Park. Lousy cell service. So when you're, you're, you're out taking a walk and you're desperate to know what the temperature is going to be in 90 minutes, which I'm often desperate to know that. Um, um, Tough luck. 
You know, so you, but what, what do you find? You find yourself with this thing out. No service. What kind of place is this? Uh, right? Right? You're addicted. You're addicted to something that captures your mind and holds it hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, and eventually year after year. Well, you've got to get away from that. And yes, you do. But you better not think it's going to be easy to do that. Because it won't be. It won't be easy to do that. Um, my brother, I was do a Zoom prayer meeting with him on Fridays and a number of other people, but um, he's the host of it. And he was recently at what they call a um, Acts 6-4 Seminar Acts six four is the text that says you know when they were picking the uh, deacons that they were to be men who are devoted to uh, prayer and to the word of God and they have these seminars all over the uh, country about that and it, definitely these seminars are are weighted on the prayer side of it that's the big focus at uh, and and my brother was just at one in Calgary, uh, Alberta. And, uh, and the main, the guy that was running, uh, running that one was a, for a little while, years ago, he had been my, uh, my father-in-law's um, uh, pastor up in uh, Minneapolis, a guy by the name of Daniel Henderson. Uh, so he was, uh, he was the pastor for a relatively short period of time of uh, Grace uh, Church, and um, but my my brother was telling me that at the close of this seminar, Daniel Henderson said that he had overheard a number of the people that had come, many of them, most of them, pastors from small, difficult places, and church leaders from relatively difficult places, and, and he had overheard them say, yeah, this conference was wonderful, but now, now we have to get back to real life. Now we've got to go back to real life. And Henderson said, you got to quit thinking that way. Prayer and the presence and the glory of God, that is real life. That's the most real thing there is. When everything else has passed away, that will still be there. And that's there now. We open singing that, right? Glory to God, glory to God. Oh, yeah, nice to go to church and sing glory to God. But then you got to go back to real life. Your troubled lives, your troubled family, your troubled health, your trouble at work, trouble, 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 real life. But no, 
real life, including all of that. is found within the scope of the God who says, look, I will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Pull aside, remind yourself of who you are. My reading program now, I'm always in the Gospels and I'm always in the Psalms. So I'm just cycling through, cycling through, cycling through. I mentioned this text a few weeks ago, but I happen to be back there again already. Close of Psalm 31, verses 23 and 24. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Love the Lord... And in the Hebrew text, you could take it this way, and I like it a little better than saints. Love the Lord, all you the people of his steadfast love. Because the word for saints in Hebrew is the word uh, off the same root of the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Steadfast love, steadfast love. Hesed. Hesed. You the people of God's Steadfast love. How important, how much, how helpful would it be for you to regular pull aside and remind yourself, I'm not just an American, I'm not just a Republican, I'm not just an evangelical, I'm not just a whatever you plug in there. I'm not just a dentist, I'm not just a doctor, I'm not just a lawyer, I'm not just a teacher. I am the object of the steadfast love of God, which will endure forever. And then, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, the warning. Again, that is no easy thing to do. Verse 24, be strong and let your heart be courageous. All of those waiting on God, all of those waiting on the Lord. So to actually keep God in your focus and to keep trusting him, another song that we sang this morning had the three magic words in it, rest, trust, hope. Rest, trust, hope. That trusting and hoping is just constant everywhere throughout the Psalms. And here we're reminded, yes, yes, but easier said than done. Not that you can't do it. You can, you should, but expect this. You're going to have to be strong. And your heart's going to have to be courageous if you're going to trust God in the circumstances in which you're just, you've just been called to trust him in. Because you're in circumstances, you can't make heads or tails out of any of it. Your big questions are, how did I get here? Why would God put me here? I see no end to any of it. What in the world am I supposed to do? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. 
You wait for the Lord. As the child of his steadfast love, you wait for the Lord. You keep your, well, oh, man, I don't see how you can do that. Well, you're going to have to be strong to do it. You're going to need a courageous heart. You need to be clear about who you are, which is, again, now we turn the corner and head for the Lord's table, because this is the issue at the Lord's table. After Paul outlines it, which I'll read in just a moment, remember he makes that comment that we mentioned we mentioned month by month or every five weeks. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat. Let a man examine himself. For what? Well, examine yourself. Are you one of these children of God's steadfast love? To use the terminology that shows up in Paul's words, are you... Are you a member of the new covenant community? Because the table represents the new covenant in his blood. Reference back to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Has God written the law on his heart? And are you trusting in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? So are you born again And as a born-again person, trusting God desperately, totally, completely for the forgiveness of your sins. Not trusting yourself at all. No tendency to say, well, I've always been a good person. The Lord's table must be for me. I'm really quite a wonderful guy. If you have any sense of that, the table is definitely not for you. Definitely not. It's only for those who have felt their desperate need of forgiveness, but know that there has been a solution provided in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're serious about following Christ. The law has been written on their heart as purchased through the death of Christ, the new covenant in his blood. Let me read those familiar words again. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I received from the Lord that which I also have given to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in my remembrance. Likewise, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is, and here it is, the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it for my remembrance. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So like in the purpose of the Sabbath in in Deuteronomy, what are you doing? You're pulling yourself aside and you're saying, who am I and who do I understand God to be? Who am I? Well, I'm a person who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And who is God? Well, he's the one who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You say, well, that's who I am, and that's who my God is, and the table is yours. That's whose, that's, that's whose table it is. Paul warns you, be examine yourself, be sure that's who you are. Be sure that's who you are. That's what coming to the table gives you an opportunity to do repeat. Be sure. Know who you are. Ask the men who will serve communion to come at this time. And I will, as they take their places, ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Father in heaven, we do praise you that you are the God who did not spare your own son, but you delivered him up for us as Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. As Paul repeated, this is his body broken for you. O Lord, we rest all of our hope of life and forgiveness in the self-giving and in the selfless sending of the Son of God into the world by you, our Father who is in heaven. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.